actually thinking last night, I was just sitting down and, and going over my notes for this morning, and I was actually thinking about what a rough week I had this week. Headaches and work and just so much stuff going on, and I was a little bit grumpy with my husband. Just a little, just a little bit. A little bit grumpy with my kids, and I was just feeling super drained and just looking forward to coming to church this morning, looking forward to just standing in corporate worship. And all of a sudden, a thought came to me. I actually remembered a sermon. I think it was Pastor Daniel preached. It was maybe five years ago, 10 years ago. I don't know how long ago it was. But he was talking about how sometimes as Christians, we go through our week, and then we just go through it just so we can get to Sunday, so we can plug in and get recharged and just get refreshed, right? But how many of us know that's not what it's supposed to be like? Amen? It's supposed to be an everyday thing for us, right? King David says, I meditate on your word day and night, right? We're supposed to be living in that atmosphere of worship every day, plugging in to the one who has everything we need, all wisdom, rest, all power, everything that we need to get through our week is in him, right? So if any of you were like me this week, I don't know if any of you were, but this is the great thing about consequences, because I was feeling them, is that consequences are a teacher, right? So I've learned my lesson, <laughs> and I know how to do next week a little bit better. So let's be encouraged by next week is a new week. Amen? We have been studying in the book of Psalms for quite a few months. Uh, it has been such a blessing. Um, I love the book of Psalms. I remember a time when I was very young, I think it was before actually I got married, where I said to one of my grandmas, I said, you know, I just, I don't like the book of Psalms. Like, it's super boring. I just, I just don't get it. I just don't like reading in the book of Psalms. I prefer to read here or there. And I laugh now because it's so different. I love the book of Psalms now. It is so rich. It is so powerful. And I get so much out of it. And I actually came across a quote from Martin Luther that really spoke to me. And he actually said, um, just trying to make sure I get it right. But he actually says, you know, I didn't fully grasp. I didn't fully understand all of the Psalms until I went through affliction. So I guess that means that back then my grandma knew, right? She was laughing, and I've been through a few things. But I love studying the, the life of David. I love studying the life of David. Um, I think I'm just amazed and, and just in awe of the intimacy that he had with the Lord. It was such an un common intimacy, an uncommon relationship. In the Old Testament, we don't see the Holy Spirit mentioned a whole lot, not compared to the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit was definitely mentioned by King David. Definitely, you can see his activity and David referencing it in his life, and we're actually going to talk a little bit about that today. And I just, I love this picture of this shepherd boy in this field, just developing this intimate relationship with the Lord, a heart for worship, a heart for the presence of God. His hands in that field were trained for war. That's where God trained him for war. In that field, that shepherd's boy's heart was trained to be a shepherd over the flock. God was preparing him to be the king of Israel, a shepherd over his flock. And it's just such a beautiful picture to me. 
beautiful picture. So we're actually going to be studying uh, and, and looking deeper at a time in David's life this morning. And I just want to set the, the time frame a little bit, okay? So this time in David's life where we're going to enter, things were going really good for David, Things were going great for David. Um, he had not just been, Saul was dead. He, I mean, not super good news, but right. <laughs> um, for David, this was good news. He was set up not just as king over Judah, but he was now set up as king over all of Israel. He had taken back Jerusalem. God had made his, um, all of his enemies to be at peace with him. Okay, that's always a good thing, right? He had brought the Ark of the Covenant, so the presence of God that rests on that mercy seat, he had brought that actually back to Jerusalem. So this was a really great time. God had actually just come to him, and and David actually said, you know, the Lord has established me because he's given me this place to live. So King David felt like when God gave him this residence, that that God was really establishing him, right, as king. And God had even come to him and said, you know, David, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to be with your son. And even when your son messes up, my mercy is going to follow him. That is a good thing for the Lord to say to you. And I'm going to establish your throne, and it's going to be forevermore. So I hope I've painted a picture that this was a good time for David. Things were going really, really well for him. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab. Joab was the commander of the army of Israel at that time. Um, David sent Joab and his servants with them, and all of Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon, besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So for whatever reason, David decided he wasn't going to go up with the army of Israel, and he wasn't going to go up like the rest of the kings did. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, and he walked onto the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold for David. So David sent and inquired inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So in this moment that we're entering David's life, We're entering at a time where things were going very good for him, but this was a time of temptation for him. Temptation is a revealer. When we are in temptation, we actually come to realize the state that we're in. Temptation itself is not a sin. So David being tempted, that was not actually the sin. What's important is how we respond to that temptation. The Bible tells us to flee it. So in this moment, David had a choice, right? So he's like, okay, I really like this woman over here. Go tell me about her. Find out about her. And he's told, oh, she's married. She's off the market. So David, as a king who was staying home from battle, like, I feel like maybe he should have (laughs) fled, Maybe he should have, you know, girded up in armor, jumped on his chariot, and went out. And rather than coveting the wife of Uriah, one of his 30 most best mighty men in his army, maybe he should have gone out and and spent some time on the field with Uriah. Right? But he had a choice here. We, all of us, go through temptation. But God says that he's never 
going to allow us to be tempted more than what we can bear, and he'll always provide a way out. I believe this was David's way out right here. He's married. Or sorry, she's married. Okay, she's married. And if it's too much for me to bear, I think I'm going to go fight with Uriah. (laughs) So David sent, uh, sorry, then David sent messengers, and he took her. David. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned back down to her house. And the woman conceived... So she sent and told David, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So David's reaction to finding out about this is, go get Uriah off the battlefield. Tell tell Joab to bring him in. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing. He asked how the people were doing. And he was asking, "How, how was the war prospering? So he's making small talk with Uriah. Just give me a report of what's going on on the battlefield. Um, And David said to Uriah, you know what, go down to your house, go wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to the house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to this house, David said to Uriah, didn't you not come from a long journey? Why don't you want to go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab, the commander of the army, and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What a man of honor. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow, and then I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and he drank before him, and he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city. So like, let's understand this for a quick second here. The death orders for Uriah's life was sent to Joab in Uriah's own hand. He delivered his own death sentence to the commander of the army to which he was faithful to. So as it was when Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So not only did Uriah lose his life, but other men that he fought against in the army of Israel, they lost, lost their lives as well. Then Joab sent, and he told David all the things that were concerning the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you finish telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath arises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Why did you go near the wall? Your ser- then you shall say to David, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead 
also. So what he was saying to the messenger, in essence, was, we're going to go give a report to the king. If he's upset, make sure you pacify him with saying that Uriah is dead. I, I really think that the messenger got what was being laid down here because he didn't even wait for the king to respond at the news. So the messenger went, he came and told David all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out into the field. And when we drove them back as far as the entrance from the gate, the archers shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants were dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He didn't even wait for the king to get upset. He let him know right away, Uriah's dead. Right? I don't want to I don't want to feel the king's anger. Then David said to the messenger, "Thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you." For the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and throw it out and and overthrow it. So encourage Joab in this. David didn't like losing men. But in this instance here, he encouraged the messenger and said, you know what, let Joab know, like, I'm sorry about the loss, right? But, like, it's a cost of war, right? Like, this, the sword devours one as the other, right? If we go back just a little bit, and for our benefit, I did, there was another time when somebody came to King David and said, hey, there's this guy who he died. His name was Abner. Abner was actually the commander of Israel's army under King Saul, okay? What this actually means is that Abner sought David's life with Saul. Abner tried to kill David for no good reason, okay? So he pursued David in order to take his life. When David was set up as king, even though Abner knew that he was anointed by God through Samuel, he rejected David as king. He went across the Jordan and set up one of Saul's sons as king. Then Abner took one of Saul's women and he slept with her. When he was confronted, he defected and he took the army of Israel and then went and made peace with David. And to top that all off, he killed Joab's brother. Remember, Joab is the commander currently of David's army, okay? So when they went to David and said, hey, David, Abner's, Abner's dead, David publicly grieved. He publicly tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, he fasted, and he called all the people to do that with him. Abner was not a man of honor. He was not a man who respected God's choice as king. Abner killed Joab's brother, the commander of David's army, and Abner also, for many, 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 many months, sought David's life for no reason. Uriah, on the other hand, was faithful and loyal to God, his wife, King David, and Joab, the commander of David's army. He refused to go and sleep with his wife while the other men were still on the battlefield. He actually named in a list, he was actually named in a list of David's top 30 mighty men in the army of Israel. But David put the orders for Uriah's murder into his own hands. 
to deliver those to Joab. And when David heard of the death of one of his top men, this man of honor, this man who was faithful to him, to God, to his wife, to the commander of army, David's reaction was very different than how he reacted to Abner's death, a man of dishonor, a man who tried to kill him. He said, you know what? Just let Joab know. Like, that's the cost of war, right? The, the sword devours one as the other. Sin stops, sin clouds our judgment. Sin also stops us from fulfilling the call of God on our life. And we see that here in David. Sometimes when we hear this mention of David's sin, it's almost like this little blotch in this amazing resume. Amazing resume. It's like this tiny little spot in time, but it wasn't just a tiny little spot in David's life. It wasn't like he committed adultery on Monday, he took out the husband on Friday, and on Wednesday, Nathan the prophet went to him and was like, hey, David, and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? It's not what it was like at all. This was actually this whole process of all of these things that happened was actually probably around 10 months from the time that he first saw Bathsheba and slept with her and then she conceived and all of those things, um, you know, pulling Uriah off, um, off the field and all those things that he did to try to cover his sin. It wasn't just a tiny little spot in time. This time in David's life um, was going good up until now. David went from lust to covetedness to adultery to murder, and he invited others in on his sin. Joab was actually an accessory, and his sin affected a lot of other people and a lot of other people's lives around him. Sometimes we just don't see the pathway back, right? Sometimes it's just maybe a little bit of a compromise. Sometimes we get a little bit too comfortable with it, and we don't see that pathway back. I feel like almost like it's almost easier to be like the prodigal son, like take off your robe and like throw it down on the ground, take off your signet ring, say, you know what, dad, I'm just rejecting everything that you stand for and go out and just openly do your thing, right? Because then all of a sudden we can be like, oh my gosh, there's this open, this blatant thing and, and it's easier to sort of run back maybe. But David, it wasn't like that for him. He was actually ruling on the throne of Israel in full-blown rebellion for quite some time. So I want to talk about when Nathan um, came to, to David. So Nathan was a prophet. I'm going to paraphrase sort of this, this part just in the interest of time. But Nathan was a prophet sent by God to confront David. And Nathan went to David and he said, you know what, David, there's this super rich man, this rich ruler, and he's going to entertain, he went to entertain somebody. And rather than taking a lamb from his own flock and slaughtering it for, for, to entertain this ruler and to make this nice meal, he actually went to his neighbor, this poor guy who only had one lamb, who loved his lamb and raised his lamb and was faithful to his lamb. And he went and took that lamb and he killed that lamb, and he served that lamb. And this is David's reaction. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. 
and he shall restore full fold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you so much more. Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your own wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. David had a few options here. A few ways that he could have reacted. He could have ran in disobedience. Continued down that road of disobedience and ran. I know another man who did that. He ran into a big uh, fish. It didn't work out too good for him. He could have lied about it. He could have denied it. He could have been like, Nathan, I think you're hearing wrong. Got a bag of stones over there, (laughs) right? He could have done that. Or he could have confessed and repented. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I believe that David confessed and repented because of who he knew God to be. The Lord responded through Nathan, and Nathan said, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. When I read that, I thought, Oh my gosh, you said anything about death. But according to the little Levitical law, the penalty for adultery, even if you were the king, was death. The penalty for murder was also death. When I read this, I was going through this account. You don't hear emotion when you're reading the account, right? You don't know how David felt. It was almost like David was this great man of God. And then as you read through the account, it's just like these accounts of things that happened. It's like they're more factual, right? And I sit there wondering, how could David go from a place of such intimacy to like full-blown rebellion over here? And, and hiding it, choosing to hide it instead. Did it not bother him? I want to read Psalm 51. I'm going to read it under the, out of the Passion Translation because I really loved it. I want us to listen for David's pain. Because David didn't just go through that 10 months or however long it was without feeling it. I want us to listen for hints of intimacy between him and the Lord. I want us to listen to who God is revealed in this psalm. This is Psalm 51. This is what David wrote after Nathan had come to him. I don't know if Nathan fell on his knees, and I don't know if he cried this out to the Lord and wrote it then or later in the night or later on, but let's listen. God, give me mercy from your fountain of forgiveness. I know your abundant love is enough to wash away my guilt. Because your compassion is so great, take away the shameful guilt of sin. Forgive the extent of my rebellious ways and erase this deep stain on my conscience, for I am so ashamed. I feel such pain and anguish within me. I can't get away from the sting 
of my sin against you, Lord. Everything I did, I did right in front of you, for you saw it all. Against you and above you all have I sinned. Everything you say to me is infallibly true, and your judgment conquers me. I've been a sinner since birth and from the moment my mother conceived me. I know that you delight to set your truth deep in my spirit. Here's an invitation from David. So come into the hidden places of my heart and teach me wisdom. Purify my conscience and make this leper clean again. Wash me in your love until I am pure of heart. Satisfy me with your sweetness and my song of joy will return. The places within me you have crushed will rejoice in your healing touch. Hide my sins from your face. Erase all my guilt by your saving grace and create a new clean heart within me. Fill me with pure thoughts and holy desires ready to please you. May you never reject me and may you never take your Holy Spirit from me. Then I can show to other guilty ones how loving and merciful you are. They will find their way back home to you, knowing that you will forgive them. The source of your pleasure is not in my performance or the sacrifices that I might offer to you. The fountain of your pleasure is found in the sacrifice of my shattered heart before you. You will not despise my tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet. It's true that God hates sin, But one thing we have to remember is God hates sin, but he doesn't hate us. His word says, it's an open invitation all the time. Boldly approach the throne of grace so that you may obtain mercy and grace in your time of need. That is an open invitation to every single one of us, every single day, all the time. If you think for one minute that your sin is too big for the blood of Jesus, you're believing a lie. There is no mountains of sin so numerous that God cannot forgive you. In fact, he's put this invitation there. The whole foundation of our gospel is the cross. Sometimes, though, and I don't know why, it's almost like we feel as Christians we, we allow this shame to come in and condemnation and it separates us from God. Sin separates us. It gets in a way of us fulfilling the call of God on our lives. It steals our peace and it steals our rest and it steals our confidence in prayer and it causes our faith to be shaken. I don't believe that David could have stood in front of Goliath during those 10 months. I don't believe he could have. But what's interesting is as Christians, many times, even though we know these things to be true, we have a hard time sometimes running to that throne. And it's usually because we're believing a lie. You're a Christian. You should have known better. God doesn't want you. He can't use you anymore because of what you've done. How many times does he have to forgive you? Like there's got to be a limit, right? There's no limit on God's love. 
His love for you and his love for me is 100% limitless. His mercy never runs out. His mercy never fails. His grace is more than enough to help you get through whatever it is that you're going through. And I don't know if I'm just preaching to myself this morning, because that could be. But sometimes we feel like it's just a little sin. And then we get comfortable with it. And I don't know where everybody is here. I don't know if you're like David in full-blown rebellion because he was in full-blown rebellion sitting on the throne over Israel. And if he can be in full-blown rebellion sitting on the throne over Israel, we can come to church on Sunday in full-blown rebellion, right? So wherever you are this morning, whether you feel like that's me, I'm in full-blown rebellion. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I've, I've just, I don't know what, I'm just putting everything in front of the Lord or above him. I'm not putting him first. Or maybe there's this one thing and you can't break free from it that you're being held bondage to. No matter what it is, you have an open invitation this morning and every day to run to that throne of grace. Every single day. Please, friends. I've done it many times. Don't delay in running to the throne of grace. Don't let anything, don't let anything get in the way between you and your Savior. He paid a huge cost for it. I actually want to read one more more psalm. Is that okay with you guys? This is Psalm 32. I don't know when David wrote this one, um, but I really liked it because this psalm, and I'm going to read out of the Passion Translation again as we end. Um, this psalm was, is very much just seems like David's observations. This is like his experience and his advice to us. Because as we can see, like he's been there, he's done that, right? And he's come out on the other side. So David says here, how happy and fulfilled are those who rebellion has been forgiven. Those whose sin are covered by blood. How blessed and relieved are those who have confessed their, conru- their con- corruption to God. For he wipes their slate clean and removes hypocrisy from their hearts. Before I confessed my sins, I kept it all inside. That is me sometimes. My dishonesty devastated my inner life. If we think that we can walk in sin and it not affect our inner life, it's not true. Causing my life to be filled with frustration, irrepressible anguish and misery. The pain never let up, for your hand of conviction was heavy on my heart. I feel sometimes when I read the life of David, I'm like, oh, wow, like, it's just so amazing, and I, and I can't, like, attain any of that. But, you know, David was a man just like you and I. He went through stuff just like you and I did. And we have the same open invitation to an intimate, intimate relationship with Jesus, just like David did. My strength was sapped and my inner life was dried up like a spiritual drought within my soul. 
Sounds so sad. Then I finally admitted to you all of my sins, refusing to hide them any longer. And I said, my life-giving God, I will openly acknowledge all of my evil actions, and you forgave me. All at once, guilt of my sin washed away, and all the pain disappeared. This is what I've learned through it all. All believers should confess their sins to God. Do it every time God has uncovered you in the time of exposing. Keep a short account with God. Don't let it get long. For if you do this, when sudden storms of life overwhelm, you will be kept safe. You are my secret hiding place, protecting me from these troubles, surrounding me with songs of gladness. Your joyous shouts of rescue release my breakthrough. And I love how he finishes. I hear the Lord saying, I will stay close to you. Instructing and guiding you along the pathway of your life. I will advise you along the way and lead you forth with my eyes as your guide. So don't make it difficult. Don't be stubborn, God says. When I take you where you've not been before, don't make me tug you and pull you along. Just come with me. So my conclusion is this. Many are the sorrows and frustrations of those who don't come clean with God. But when you trust in the Lord for forgiveness, his wraparound love will surround you. So celebrate the goodness of God. He shows his kindness to everyone that is his. Go ahead, shout for joy, all you upright ones who want to please him. I want to close in prayer this morning. And I don't, like I said, I don't know where every single one of you are. But God knows where you are. He sees you exactly where you're sitting. And he loves you. Exactly as you are. And he loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you in a place that separates you from him. His desire is intimacy with you. Let's just close in prayer this morning. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in your word that we find all the answers, everything that we need. We thank you that in your word we get to know and we get to understand who you are what you care about, and what your thoughts are towards us. And right now, Lord, we just open our hearts to you. And if there's anything in there that's separating us from you, if there's any sin in there, if there's in, in any way if we're putting something ahead of you, right now, Lord, we just repent of that. Lord, you have an open invitation to search us. You have an open invitation to point out any sin. Father, if you have to send us a Nathan, we're open to listen from a Nathan, Lord God. Because we want to fulfill the call that you have on our lives. We know that you have people lined up in our pathways that you want us to bless and minister to. 
So we just ask you right now, just wash us clean. Wash us clean from any impurities, anything that we have done to sin against you. And right now, we reject the lie that our sin is too big. We reject the lie that our sins are too numerous. And we reject the lie that we are not worthy because you made us worthy. Thank you, Jesus, for washing us clean. We thank you, Jesus, for your blood on that cross. We thank you for walking that road. We thank you, Lord, that your mercy never fails. We thank you that your mercy and your grace are always enough for us, more than enough. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.